2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, it's the 700th episode of Little Atoms, and Jonathan Meads returns to talk about his new collection of journalism... Pedro and Ricky come again. Jonathan Meads is a writer, journalist, essayist and filmmaker. His books include three works of fiction, Filthy English, Pompey and the Fowler Family Business, and several collections, including Museum Without Walls, which received 13 nominations as a Book of the Year in 2012. An Encyclopedia of Myself was shortlisted for the 2014 Penn Ackley Prize and longlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize in 2015. And his first and only cookbook, The Plagiarist in the Kitchen, was published in 2017. And Jonathan has written and performed in more than six. 60 highly acclaimed television films on predominantly topographical subjects such as shacks, garden cities, megastructures, buildings associated with vertigo, beer, pigs, and the architecture of Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, and Franco. And today, for what is going to be the 700th edition of Little Atoms, Jonathan was on First of all, I'm not sure which one, but certainly one of the first ten, anyway, back in 2015. Um, we're going to be talking about Jonathan's latest book, Pedro and Ricky Come Again. wherein are in a review in this collection of an old Faber collection of popular music from 1990. Jonathan describes as 875 pages and £3 2 ounces. Well, I happen to know from about half an hour ago when I read it that this book weighs in at £2 11 ounces and is a mighty 983 page. Ages. Jonathan, welcome back to Little Atoms.
0: Hi, thank, thank you very much for inviting me back.
1: 2005, it wasn't
0: 2015.
1: 2005, yes, definitely the first yeah. time. Yep, 17 years ago. Doesn't seem credible, but this will be the 10th time that we've done something for Little Atoms as well. Um, let's talk about how this collection came about then. So it's it's basically a collection of your writing covering a roughly 30-year period from 1988 to 2020.
0: Well, its precursor, which uh, covered my work from uh, 1971, when I first started writing professionally, up to uh, 1988, was called Peter Knows What Dick Likes. And that title came from the fact that Peter and Dick are both words for a penis, and there's a, or was, a sort of gay... Militancy, which said that men gave better blowjobs because they, you know, it's give and take. And so so Pedro and Ricky kind of nods towards that. It's also kind of nods towards Derek and Clive, uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore at their filthiest. And um, yeah, that's, that's the title. The title has absolutely nothing to do with anything in the book. It's just um, like a, a slogan.
1: So what was the, the process of selecting the works for this collection?
0: well leaving out stuff which is that didn't interest me any longer for various reasons partly because I didn't like the writing or thought the subject was unengaging and going through i mean the stuff that was obviously like that and stuff that was less obviously like that so so it was a, a gradual process my wife is an editor and she played a large part in in the selection some of the stuff seemed very dated, I mean, it is going back 30 years, and uh, some stuff extraordinarily didn't seem dated at all. I mean, it's um, pretty, it was hard to call, hard to uh, anticipate what was okay and what wasn't, not just about being dated and so on. So one had to, I had to read it all again, and sometimes I felt I was reading someone who was a complete stranger, which is a Kind of um, It's a feeling I quite enjoy because it, it, it's, it's as if I'm writing not as myself. And I hope that... I mean, it's had good reviews. I've, I'm delighted by the reviews it's had. And, you know, some very good people have reviewed it. Jonathan Green, Roger Lewis, um, Stephen Poole, etc. And various others whose names have escaped me at the moment. So I'm pleased by the reception. And in general, I'm, I'm sort of quite with the book I mean well you know one finds once it's been published things which you think oh god I should have done something about that but for the most part I, I'm reasonably satisfied.
1: What do you think I mean I don't know to what extent you revisited Peter Knows What Dick Likes when you were putting this one together as well but do you think in terms of the the sort of coherency of, of the collection, there is? well, coherency across across both pieces, or do you think in the latter 30 years that your preoccupations and sort of you know fascinations have have changed more?
0: Um yes, preoccupations do change, but as Ern Hatley, another person who, who reviewed it, said that he was rather amazed by the kind of consistency of obsessions or fascinations and themes. And not just the subjects, but you know, stylistically, that there hadn't been a, a great change. But uh, Owen, being very generous, didn't say whether he thought that was a good or a bad thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I've just finished writing a, a new novel, which is as long as this book is. Oh, wow. And I'm very pleased going through it by the fact that it doesn't sound like me a lot of the time. You know, I don't, you know, don't know where it comes from. And I sit, sort of sit down and a whole load of filth and is emitted onto the page. Mm, that's my modus operandi. <laughs> um, but in terms of coherence, the book is put together thematically, or having said which, many of the pieces could be in different chapters, in different sections. They cross over pretty consistently. I mean, if there's a piece about... I don't know, some kind of building, it may well bring in something which has nothing to do with buildings, which is just something which I do in my, my films. They're sort of collaged rather than being polemical. And they're polem- they are polemical, but they are done by collage rather than by um, a beginning, a middle and end. But, you know, like Jean-Luc Godard, I believe in the beginning, a the middle and end, but not necessarily in that order. So I just sort of, open it at random which is in a section about London it goes back to Cooper of Olney going on this queen of cities is rigid and denouncing death on petty robbers and indulges life and liberty and oft on or two to, to peculators of the public gold nothing changed there it's, it's exactly like today but that was written in the uh, 1770s I think and it's actually in a piece about our Lovely Prime Minister.
1: Who we'll come on to more, no doubt, later on. Interestingly, I I wanted to ask how you you fared over in Marseille with the pandemic. There's an essay in the book, um, is it called Country Pancakes? which is an old essay from the 90s. And you talk about, you know, the way in which one of the sort of English obsessions with the countryside and with living in the countryside, in a house and in the suburb, has obviously been to the sort of detriment of the inner cities. And it made me think about how suddenly now this situation has been thrown upon us which you know obviously while thinking of like central London over the past year it's been it's been completely dead but suddenly everybody is having to work from home and I wonder if that idea because that's clearly going to be you know to a certain extent I think now it's been this massive experiment in home working has happened I don't think all offices are going to throw open their doors again this is going to be this at least partly the way of the future and I wonder if that might have some sort of effect on in city living again
0: well i think it, that various questions here one is that the the french model for as long as one can remember is that the inner city is on the outside of the city no the inner city the actual core of the city <laughs> is where quite affluent people live
1: yeah and, and, and what we call the inner city is on the, is the ring on the outside
0: uh, I see what you mean. Yes, the, the, the inner, in, inner city in, the in yeah, in, but only in England and America. Is it, you know, does, is it a, a kind of shorthand for deprivation, drugs, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? And what's happened in Britain in my lifetime uh, since about the mid-60s, very gradually the word gentrification was coined in the early 60s, by a sociologist um, name I think, was Ruth Shaw, that people have begun... You know, I can remember when Notting Hill, one of the richest areas, now one of the richest areas in Europe, was a slum. And most of it was absolutely derelict. It was... There was a, Peter Rackman, who, notorious slum landlord, owned dozens, if not hundreds, of properties. And the place was a dump. And gradually, it's, it's come round to being what it was when it was built in the 1850s, when there was the, you know, famous the Hippodrome or Fladbrook Grove and so on. It's come back to that and it's pushed out. There's been a kind of class clearance. It's pushed out people on low incomes out to the suburbs, which had been the, the apple of people's eye, uh, certainly during the the first 50 years, 60 years of the 20th century. And that's where people wanted to live and their children decided to move back into into towns, And that's what happened in London and it's happened increasingly throughout the rest of England. I leave out, I accept Glasgow and Edinburgh there because Glasgow and Edinburgh always conform much more to the French model. But as I said at the end of one of my films, films about regeneration, what's going to happen in... Britain and is now happening very obviously is that all the problems are going to be outside the ring road, all the social problems.
1: Thinking back to that film, The Regeneration, um, The On the Brand Wagon, and that, those sort of period films. You obviously at that time talked about how you know that was obviously a New Labour thing. That was you were talking there, particularly about the New Labour ideas of regeneration, but harking back also to like you know Michael Heseltine and, and the God Festival and what have you. And now, of course, they call it leveling up because you know the Tories have got to keep the uh, the so-called red wall on the side. The whole the, the latest attempt to to regenerate and revitalise the north of England is this basic bribe now for um, for voting in Boris johnson as our prime minister so how do you think that's gonna go
0: well i think one of the things about leveling down up or in any direction is say money is poured into housing in i know york or which probably doesn't need it but less affluent places uh, in the kind of bradford leeds conurbation what it will do will just turn them into dormitory places into dormitory areas they won't have any um I mean, Britain notoriously builds without any kind of, without having thought out infrastructure. And it would just mean that people who might have been living in, I don't know, Headingley or far Headingley in Leeds will move to get, you know, more space for their bucks if they move to some newish development, which, you know, but that's all they'll get. They won't get benefits of a kind of concentrated established community and when I was doing a lot of artwork in 2015-2016 just before I got ill I was doing a kind of reverse commute I was staying in London and going down to Isleworth to, work to a, a printer's where I was working and it was absolutely extraordinary that you go from Waterloo to Isleworth you go through Barnes and various places Brentford and Absolutely everywhere there are the same new-build flats, new-build low-rises, and so on. And there's it's like every back garden has had something built in it. It's an extraordinary sort of exercise in density. But what, ha- what else it achieves, I don't know. And I don't think one can know, unless one actually spends some time living in these spaces, how you interact with the um, environment around you, which is... a you know, it's a new environment it's in, in the way that the flats built in the Peabody Flats and those sort of developments were built in the 1860s, 1870s. And that was the kind of new environment. You have to kind of get used to, to I mean, people are very adaptable, but I know that they're that adaptable in their homes, which is something which is kind of absolutely central to everyone say unfortunates who don't have a home
1: it's I we've just been talking before we came on air about you know I've just relatively recently moved into this uh, new apartment in Barking on in East London and you know I can look out my window and see there's probably 20 or 30 cranes on the horizon where similar developments are going in and Barking itself is an absolute hive of redevelopment there's probably thousands of apartments being built here and and again you're absolutely right in that you know you go down into the down into the high street of Barking and it's full of people from 200 different countries and all of the shops are all like local shops local owned shops I don't know if you, if you came across what happened with um, Elephant and Castle with the uh, the, the shopping centre there recently, where that's like there's been a very sort of controversial redevelopment going on there. Um, You know, expensive. is it actually going on? Though? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's going way? on. The, the, yeah, the shopping centre's closed now. It's it's basically closed to be redeveloped. It's been,
0: talk, it's been talked about for so many years. I mean, yeah. we lived we lived near there till ninety. We moved here 50... We moved to France 15 years
1: ago. So, and what what you have down, you know, what you have That's down been, in yeah. the street here is there's a community. There is definitely a community with local community shops, and all around that are these expensive apartments being built for basically for city workers. And there seems to be, on the one hand, no new facilities for the people that already live here. On the other hand, no particular um, gentrification is the word i am part of that gentrification unfortunately but no sort of obvious apart from the buildings there's no you know nice coffee shops there's no nice bars happening yet or anything so it seems like you know they're redeveloping the town massively but it doesn't have the feel of somewhere that's like somewhere in the london like shoreditch or hackney or something would
0: yeah but i mean it's not just parking, it's just absolutely yeah, everywhere yeah, everywhere, yeah everywhere. Everywhere. i mean and um... Um, you know, the volume builders have kind of, you know, having a very, very good time indeed. Not least because when he was mayor of London, Johnson just overrode planners who knew what they were on about and put through literally hundreds of schemes, which will be built when the volume builders who own the land think it's a suitable time. And yes, that pocket will you know, they should build it very quickly because there'll be demand in such and such place. I mean, um, one saw it a lot in when we left London. We left kind of cranescape. I mean, the cranes everywhere, as you were saying. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty
1: pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jonathan Meads and we're talking about his new book, Pedro and Ricky Come Again, Selected Writing from 1988 to 2020. And, well, we've mentioned Boris Johnson a few times and I was reading earlier an essay from the book from that period of time when he was um, the mayor of London and was just, you know, signing through. Any old development. I think you say that out of 120 developments that passed over his desk, he rejected seven. And obviously, there's you know things happen like the buses and the and the garden bridge and all those sort of follies. Well, the garden bridge didn't happen. Reading that essay, I mean, there are also later essays in the book, but that one in particular, I was sort of thinking that there's a real feel in it of, how did this happen? (laughs) How did this guy get to be mayor of London? It's faintly ridiculous. Obviously, since that essay was written, there's been... Not only Brexit, not only has England land marched triumphantly out of the EU. You know, we've had an entire term of Donald Trump being president of the most powerful country in the world. And now Boris Johnson is our glorious prime minister. How did that happen?
0: God knows. I mean, I think if you if you're determined enough, I think he was very, very determined, even though he was entirely unsuitable for the job. He's a stranger to self-doubt. He's a coward who always puts blame on someone else if something goes wrong. And he talks in, in slogans. And I think also he has a kind of low cunning. I and mean, the problem is that he's no good at the job. I think he's a hideously unpleasant person. I mean, I've known about, known about Johnson since 1986, when... Tina Brown, who I knew quite well in those days, she was editor of Vanity Fair in New York. And the daughter of a Tory politician Paul Channon died of an overdose at Oxford. And it was clear that there was a kind of privileged, mostly the sort of Old Etonian cadre at Oxford, which was into very, very heavy drugs. And Tina had a lunch for various people who were helping her, giving her information, et cetera, et cetera. And Boris Johnson went to that lunch, although he wasn't one of the people who was helping her. His girlfriend was one of the people who was giving Tina information. And Tina was astonished about two weeks later to see this extremely spiteful article about her, both spiteful and snobbish, which was written by the girlfriend, but the girlfriend hadn't been at the lunch. And what... Turned out was that Johnson had written this article. He'd taken rather against Tina. Um, he'd written this article and published under his girlfriend's name. His girlfriend was then duly sacked from the Telegraph. I was also around when Johnson got sacked from the Times for making up quotes. And Charlie Wilson, who was the editor of the Times at the moment, was absolutely incandescent about it months after after he'd sacked him. He was also incandescent about the way that Johnson had got the job on the Times in the first place by people who you know, knew Murdoch and so, so on. I mean, it's, it's all kind of connecting. And he has connected very well. I mean, all the way to the top. But I mean, Tina wrote a thing about this imposture and ended by saying, I do hope it all ends badly for him, to which one can only say, hear, hear. And uh, there's still a really good chance that everything will collapse around him.
1: I wonder what that would be, because, you know, nothing he seems to have done so far seems to have, seems to have had any real detrimental effect. Their position in the polls seems to be rising. You know, people are yeah, trying to have pinned 120,000, you know, COVID deaths on him. But
0: nothing sticks. No, it, it doesn't stick. But one can hope. One just has to go on hoping. Michael Burley has just published a book about political assassination. Yeah, well, what <laughs> can only dream? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> the only sort of rider on that idea is the fact that the seemingly even more Googleish Michael Gove is waiting in the wings to take over. Seems the obvious, uh, apparent because the, the current Conservative yeah. Party is not is not over endowed with talent.
0: No, um, I know Gove. I mean, he he was. He, I didn't know him well, but he 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 was um, a journalist on the Times. I mean, I didn't know during the years that I worked at the Times. I used to go in back twice a year. I mean there's no need for me to ever put my head round the door. But I did know Governor and I quite liked him. I didn't find him the creature one's the politician one sees is a very different creature from that which he was as as a, a journalist. I don't find him as on a personal level anywhere near as disgusting as Johnson. I mean Johnson really does actually disgust me.
1: One of the preoccupations in your writing, I mean, beyond, you know, earlier than this book as well and the TV shows, um, certainly reading some of the older essays back from the the early 2000s in this book, one of your major preoccupations has always been nationalism and the sort of misuse of nationalism and particularly Little England and nationalism. Which again, you know, perhaps reading some of these essays back in the early two thousands might have seen like perhaps a little bit of an, an eccentricity on on your part. Obviously, you know, nobody could have foresaw necessarily how bad things were going to get. And, you know, obviously, again, as I said, now we're standing alone against the um, the old enemy of Europe. And I wonder what the whole Brexit debacle looked like from the perspective of the continent.
0: I would say that in France, it was regarded as... Um, I think the French were very bemused by it. They couldn't understand the logic of it, and they couldn't understand this... Kind of suicidal idea that the British had collectively gone for, and also, of course, there's the the fact that you know when, when you commit suicide, it's quite good manners not to take your neighbour with you. <laughs> um, and amusement, but it wasn't that sort of amusement which you, know, you might think, oh, the, you know, these these crazy British, they're so eccentric, eccentric, and so 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 odd. It wasn't like that. It was it was a, a slightly more bitter uh, sort of feeling, and I think the French and perhaps other countries were kind of worried about the knock-on effects of it and the boost it might give to to nationalism in countries which uh, where it is a a threat. I mean, Holland, Belgium, to an extent, Luxembourg. Germany, especially in the north, um, the north of the former east. And I don't think that has really come to pass, although there is there is certainly a feeling that it, it was, the Brexit, apart from anything else, was extremely selfish.
1: I read recently in, a, in an interview you did about the book with Owen Hatherley that you think that there'll be no more films now. Obviously, we've seen the, the gradual diminishment of, of BBC Four over the years to the extent that they're not commissioning anything. Again, you know, w- what is happening to the BBC? That seems just a absolutely fatal act to do, to cut off one of its, uh, one of its best arms, BBC Four.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, there's hardly anyone left at the BBC who I know. I don't think anyone at the BBC knows who I am. So, you know, because I, I was always fairly peripheral, I mean, well, perhaps not in the 90s, but I mean, I um, and I don't think the 90s was my best stuff. But I was on all the time. But now, I mean, I don't think they'd have any idea who I was. And maybe if they saw my stuff, they wouldn't understand it. There's no kind of populism in my work, and it's um, it's completely outside the scope of BBC. No, I mean I don't I don't I, I don't see much BBC stuff. I mean I get it, but I, I don't watch it.
1: And BBC Four yes. was pretty much all we were watching, and um, yeah, and it.
0: Seems... Well, I think it's very sad and incredibly short-sighted. Mm. But mm. I mean, the, the new director general of the BBC is a marketing manager of a fizzy drinks company. I mean, Pepsi Cola, and you know, it's not like he's the kind of marketing manager of Chateau de Cam or something like that. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just it's just a fizzy drink, I and mean, it's called Fizzy Timmy. I, I can't, um, you know, he obviously has a particular uh, low-level vision for what um, BBC should be, and he's um, being, he's instrumenting it.
1: It definitely has seemed to have been for years a, a I guess we could say, a, a sort of of the right... Movement to diminish the BBC, whether that was the Conservative Party or its, its newspapers, the, the Murdoch papers, obviously, because the Sky, but the, the Mail and what have you, for years has been, you know, sniping for the BBC. But it seems to me that, the you know, the BBC doesn't do anything to stand up to that. It, it just meekly goes along with all of these things that diminish it. So we'll yeah, but the, the
0: thing is, it doesn't, it, you know, it could very easily fight back and say, look, for every sort of Jimmy Savile or, you know, the grotesque Cliff Richard intrusion, um, you know, sort of, I mean, for it, and Lord McAlpine, who was accused of pedophilia, I mean, well, all all this stuff, the BBC is just saying, you know, think of um, the endless crimes of uh, the Murdoch press, listening to the messages on a Dead Child's Bone, and these people are all absolutely guilty. And the BBC should point this out, but it doesn't. It's reactionary, it's, it's not proactive. It won't get on the front foot.
1: Were there any, did you have any ideas for films that haven't been made that you, you know, particularly wish you had?
0: No. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've done a lot, and I there's a sort of vague idea I. Uh, out of doing walks across cities, um, sort of one called it box to box because I'd start at one football ground and go to another. I'd start at you know Celtic Park and go to Rangers, or go from Hibernians ground at Easter Road to Heart of Midlothian. But going in an absolutely straight line, so in Edinburgh you probably wouldn't see the castle. You know, but it, it, it'd be just kind of tiny details. But it it was an idea I had knocking around for many years and didn't do. But I'm, you know, I'm I'm not dissatisfied with what I did do. I got it done, which became increasingly difficult. I mean, the budgets went got smaller and smaller. Frank Handy, who directed a lot of my stuff, said when we had, a, we had a private viewing of one of our shows, we used to be a convoy, now we're a smart car. And it was I mean, the last film I did, Franco, I was ill for two weeks after getting home. I mean, it was just so, such a strain.
1: Um, and finally then, you mentioned the huge tome of a novel that you nearly finished or finished. I uh, have finished it. You have? Yeah. Uh, are you able to tell us anything about that, what's happening with it, when we might see it? Or
0: I don't know. It's going to my Colette is just editing it at the moment. Uh, not. I mean, she's not copy editing it. She's just going through it for my appalling spelling and um, punctuation and things like that. And it will go to my agent at the beginning of next week. And I don't know what will happen thereafter. He, you know, he'll send it to various, um, various publishers. And it's a it's a very, very long book. I mean, as I say, it's longer than Pedro and Ricky. And it's quite complicated. It's in many pieces. I mean, they to say it's sort a of different voices. Well,
1: fingers crossed. Hopefully we'll see that in the not too distant future then. So I've been talking to Jonathan Meads about his new book, Pedro and Ricky Come Again, Selected Writings, 1998 to 2020, which is out in the UK from Unbound. Jonathan, thanks again for talking to me about it. Thank you.